Hey, Zach. Yes, Violet? Our first episode on the leadership of Black HIV-AIDS activists like Rashida is so inspiring and eye-opening. The movie Philadelphia took place in 1993, but the work of Black AIDS activists in Philadelphia showing how AIDS was disproportionately impacting people of color was something that people like Rashida were pointing out as soon as 1985. That's eight years before the movie came out. Yes, it's incredible. If you're just catching us and are new to our series, we're revisiting the iconic 1993 film, Philadelphia, to see what the movie did and did not get right when it comes to the history of the AIDS pandemic. The movie follows the relationship of Andy Beckett, a white gay man with AIDS, and his lawyer, Joe Miller, a straight married African-American man, as they team up to fight against Andy's former law firm, a big bad law firm of bigoted, heterosexist men. The whole movie takes place in Philadelphia, the movie's namesake, a city well known for being majority black. Yes, it strikes me as strange that we get very little evidence, if any, of the spread of AIDS in the black community. But there were so many references to race and the civil rights movement in the movie. Exactly. There's this scene in the movie that I can't shake. It's the one in the library where a librarian has brought a law book on HIV discrimination to Andy. And we know from the previous shot that Joe, who has refused to help Andy up until this point, looks on from afar. Sir? This is the supplement. You're right. There is a section on HIV-related discrimination. Thank you. We do have a private research room available. Fine, right here. Thank you. But this time, the librarian and everyone around Andy has made the connection between Andy's lesions and gaunt body that he has AIDS. Everyone gets really shifty. in Joe's eyes shows that he knows this scene because it's strikingly similar to a page right out of civil rights history. As a black man, it clicks in Joe's head that Andy has just been asked, just like black people in the South under Jim Crow, to accept separate accommodations. Instead of race, however, Andy's discrimination is based on disease and disability. We know throughout time this is often how the relationship between race and homosexuality gets cast. Being gay is like being black. 
and discrimination on the basis of sexuality, just like race and the civil rights movement, is best solved through law. Although the ruling did not address the specific issue of HIV and AIDS discrimination, subsequent decisions have held that AIDS is protected as a handicap under law, not only because of the physical limitations it imposes, but because the prejudice surrounding AIDS exacts a social death which precedes which precedes the actual physical one. This is the essence of discrimination. Formulating opinions about others not based on their individual merits, but rather on their membership in a group with assumed characteristics. You know, what's so fascinating is that in this scene, that Joe, a middle-class black professional, a lawyer, literally embodies the idea that racial discrimination is in the past and that the fight against discrimination is now embodied in Andy, a gay man still facing sexual discrimination. Yes, it establishes what people call a series of false equivalencies, that being a white gay man is the same as being a straight black man. This reminds me of another scene in the movie. The, the Christmas, Christmas scene. scene. Uh, Andy, the way, the way that you've handled this whole thing, you and Miguel, with so much courage, I don't believe there's anything that, that anyone could say that would make us feel anything but incredibly proud of you. Well, I didn't raise my kids to sit in the back of the bus. Get in there and you fight for your rights. Okay? In this episode produced by Elizabeth, Ezra, Lucy, and Nadia, we really explored this false equivalency by looking to white gay leaders who suddenly found themselves contending with a pandemic that on one hand empowered gays and lesbians to fight against AIDS, but also on the other hand, push them to consider the limits of equating the fight against homophobia and AIDS with the fight against racism. Especially since, as we all know, racism is alive and well, both inside and outside of gay communities. Okay, so this is what, this takes, this goes back to the time when Action AIDS was formed, or was it, yeah, formed, because it was a very quick formation. It happened like, almost like that. Mm -hmm. um, we, there was a big meeting of, of uh, all the people who were buddies at St. Luke's. I made a speech about our needing to form something we called a meeting of people who were interested in forming a new organization. Well, on, on the one side of the street were rabid racist white people, and on our side of the street there were this, this, this old, ancient African-American community that had been, used to go from Pine Street down to about Washington Avenue. And, mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting place to be. Today in this podcast, we are going to explore and try to answer the question, how did white gay men deal with the question of race during the AIDS epidemic? Through the oral history of Jim Luttrell and his experience in AIDS task forces. Hello, I am your host, Ezra Incorvaya. This podcast is one episode of a series called The Other Streets of Philadelphia, The Early AIDS Crisis in the City of Brotherly Love, 
in which myself and other hosts explore early AIDS history in Philadelphia through oral histories told by those who are at the forefront of the movement. These histories are a part of a larger oral history project brought to you by the John Wilcox Library, Philadelphia's most extensive collection of personal papers, organizations' records, periodicals, audiovisual material, and ephemera documenting the rich history of our LGBTQ community. And, unfortunately, the answer to our initial question is nuanced and complicated. Many gay white men who held positions of power or were volunteers in many AIDS task forces were ignorant to their fellow gay black men and women affected by AIDS. We see this in failings of white task forces not reaching out to black communities in their outreach and not including black men and women in their leadership through Jim Luttrell and as part of being stuck in the middle of being conscious of the concept of race and the ignorant organizers and volunteers. Jim Luttrell is a gay Episcopal minister who found himself in the middle of activism after joining the ministry to continue his graduate work and avoid getting drafted into the Vietnam War. He then found himself in the middle of the AIDS epidemic after an HIV scare. Luttrell began going to a support group in his friend's apartment and then it all went from there. The group grew into one of the task forces that split into many more and grew into one of the most lasting chapters of national AIDS organizations. He was then caught in the middle of his anti-racist ideals and the racist volunteers of the task forces he belonged to. In this episode, we are going to look at the intersections where power lies during the AIDS crisis for race, gender, and class through Jim Luttrell and his story. In these next segments, we will be analyzing the reasons many men like Luttrell joined task forces and the problems of where their expectations led them, the tensions caused by this and where the tensions broke for AIDS task forces, where task forces changed after this point, and finally discussing the importance of being critical of everything when documenting history and discussing what is the racism involved that makes every white gay man ignorant to the issue of race. With that, let's take a deep look at Jim Luttrell and his experiences in task forces. Jim Luttrell's diverse upbringing and adult life gave him a unique vantage point in what otherwise at the time was considered just a gay white man's disease, AIDS. Born and raised in Lexington, Virginia until Jim was 12 where his father taught at Virginia Military Institute. His mother was a Quaker from northeastern North Carolina and is where they moved to on their journey back up north. Interestingly enough, knowing that Jim is now an Episcopalian pastor, the Quakers in the 1680s fled to Virginia, having been persecuted by the Episcopalians. Hmm, funny enough. Being raised Quaker was the reason why he ended up in Philadelphia area of Wetstown, as he was sent to the Wetstown School, which offers boarding in the Quaker teaching. When Jim went off to college, he found himself back in the South at Presbyterian College, as his military father was Presbyterian. Jim did not feel the sense of connection to either of his two parents' religions, but he did eventually find his place. I met up with the Episcopal Church in college, and it was the only church in town that was doing any civil rights work. And I got really involved in, in civil rights work in college uh, in this little southern town, and uh, met up with these Episcopalians and I had a professor who was an Episcopal priest and decided the Episcopal Church was where I wanted to be if I was going to be in a church because they were doing this stuff. And so I, so I joined the Episcopal Church. So by the time I got back up here, I was an Episcopalian. And Jim then found himself moving around but ended up back in Philadelphia when he met a bishop who would change everything for him 
and where he would find himself during the AIDS crisis. And there was a bishop in Philadelphia named Bob DeWitt, who was the Episcopal bishop of this part of Pennsylvania, who was really prophetic and brave. He led the desegregation of Gerard College. He desegregated schools in Chester. He was of huge civil rights and sort of radical civil rights. Uh, these days, he would have been a Black Lives Matter guy. He was, he was very involved in supporting uh, the Panthers and had, or he hired priests like me to do organizing in Philadelphia around welfare rights and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I was, I was really impressed with him. So I went to him and I said, this is the deal. I don't want to go to Vietnam. I want to, I want to go to graduate school and get a PhD, but I, I, I really, really don't want to go to Vietnam as a soldier. He said, well, why don't you go to seminary? Uh, if you want to do that, and you can do your graduate work at Penn. Latrell then found himself at seminary for a few years and initially just planned on staying for his degree, but... But I, I, I fell under this way <laughs> and, and decided that what I really wanted to do in life was to be in a sort of unconventional Episcopal priest. And so that is what I did. So I got ordained and didn't go to graduate school. And right out of seminary, I started a program in Philadelphia called Voyage House, which was aimed at being an alternative, creating an alternative culture for kids who were on the street, people on the you don't refer to them ever as kids, people under 18 who were living on the streets, of whom there were great many then as now. Jim, with Lisa Rochette, who had written a book called Throwaway Children, pulled together a coalition that was able to bring 12 center city churches, Episcopal churches, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, UCC, at 17th and Spruce, which took on the name Voyage House in 1970. They started group homes, alternative high schools, counseling centers, and all sorts of amazing things. After three to four years, Jim moved to a church in Buffalo, New York, where he was labeled as a hippie priest and would be able to do cool things for the church as they had a lot of money but didn't know how to support them and he wanted to do the right thing. By then, Jim had married a woman he had met at Wetstown, and their daughter was born there. Then she decided she was a lesbian. <laughs> And I decided I was gay, although I had sort of thought I was gay for a long time. That was, that was not news to her or to me, but she, her, her discovery was news to us both. <laughs> so we split up, and um, I went for a year to Hobart and William Smith College as a chaplain, just when that was occurring. Came out there, decided Geneva, New York was not a good place to be gay in 1977, and my my ex-wife and daughter had moved back to Philadelphia, so back I came as well. So that's what I did. And then um, when I got back here, I spent time. I was hired as the first, I don't know what, I became eventually the first executive director of the Philadelphia, what was it, at first the Philadelphia Gay Task Force, then became the Philadelphia Lesbian and Gay, or Lesbian and Gay Task Force, then became and then went out of business. And the, for the bulk of the life of that organization, Rita Odessa was the director. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, I did, we did some good stuff. But I had just come out, I wasn't, I, I wasn't really maybe the best choice for that job. <laughs> 
While Jim did not feel as if he was the best person for the organization Addie had just come out, they did a lot of good things and started the non-discrimination policy at Penn, which was a big deal as Penn was the largest employer in Philadelphia and made an enormous impact on shifting the political tide in Philadelphia. I remember exactly the first time I heard of HIV. I was, um, after I came out, I had a hard time getting a job in the Episcopal Church. Uh, in fact, I couldn't, I couldn't find a job. No one would hire a gay priest. Um, and which is one of the reasons I did the, the task force job. But while I was at the task force, I uh, also associated myself with St. Mary's, again, same St. Mary's, uh, and David Fair was the parish administrator for St. Mary's that, that time and on the board of the task force. So that's the first time he and I crossed paths. And Shortly after meeting David, he left that job and began to get very sick, but could not actually figure out why, and first was seeing a therapist, not a medical professional. It was his therapist who had handed him a clipping from the NYU and asked if he had seen it, but he had not. His therapist ultimately was the one who told him to go see someone about it. I went to get a test in Atlantic City as soon as the test became available. And I went to Atlantic City because I, because I was far away and because I was afraid. And I tested positive for HIV in Atlantic City. And then I came back and, uh, and John tested, retested me and I came back negative yeah. and so I, as part of the DuPont study. And in those days, test took a really long time, too. It's like six weeks, as I remember. Before. And then he, you know, I kept getting tested after that. So I knew, I, then both of us became pretty sure that whatever this was, was HIV. But John's theory was that there was a group of people, and I think it's still my theory, that there were, there were a whole lot of people around, like me, who probably did have HIV and then it went away. From that point on, Luttrell began going to a support group for people, mostly gay men, who lived with HIV and AIDS. Eventually, this group realized the support other people living with AIDS needed, and from there, the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force was born. A group of about, when I first went, there were seven of us, and it grew into a group of, well, it grew into the Philadelphia Ta AIDS Task Force. That's what it ended up being. But Nick is more and more than anybody else, uh, and he and I had huge differences. That's why Action Aids was formed. But, but Nick was the person who, I think, sort of summoned, gathered this group of people together and started all, all gay white men, I think, except for one African-American man who was a friend of David's named Leon Bacchius, who came pretty frequently, and one woman. Um, who came for a bit and then didn't um, at that point. But the core group was this little group of, of, gay, of us. Even with the group being small, they worked as hard as they could to make strides for supporting others. From there, Jim met John Turner, who was one of the first early HIV doctors in Philadelphia and was the medical director for FIGHT. Ultimately, Turner enrolled Jim in what would become an HIV study for the five years Jim thought he had HIV but his body never tested positive for it. Like Jim, he was not the first to have an HIV scare bring him back to reality that this disease was infecting many people without them realizing they could be at risk. This scare led to many other gay white men volunteering for AIDS task forces. I would say it, ro it arose out of differences with the, 
Well, as you said early on when we were talking before we started taping, that there was a chaotic time. By the time this became an epidemic, clearly an epidemic, and people started dying like flies all over the place, um, it, I think chaos is a fair way of describing how we all felt, although we didn't, we didn't behave particularly chaotically. I think we behaved, I think we did incredible things. I mean, this, this little band of people that grew into a larger and larger group of people doing all this stuff. That initial formation, though, was at the task force, and it, and there were tensions inside that organization. I became a vice president and tender of a couple of programs inside. Bob Schoenberg was helped put together and and eventually shepherded the kind of social support services piece of the task force. There was an education chunk of work that was doing prevention and education. We were we were all, you know people with strong opinions about everything. The not-so-small and now strongly growing organization set out to do as much as possible, but that much sometimes didn't include black men and women. This and some other tensions caused Jim Luttrell to leave the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force and create and work with Action AIDS and work to reach out to more of the black community. The really important things that we tried to do and when we put the Action Aids board together we went we spent a huge amount of time making sure it was a, a board that was uh, reflective of the population we were working with which was still at that point you know were lots and lots and lots of gay white men dying of AIDS and lots and lots of gay black men dying of AIDS and uh, more and more women uh, living with HIV and dying of AIDS. So, we wanted to uh, a board that reflected all of that, and I mean, we I think we achieved that. We had a board that was about half and half, um, black and white, and not just you know not just a show board, but a working board with really good people uh, working around this first board of action heads. Um, but we also decided that our focus would be on providing care and ancillary doing ancillary work like the prison work, work in prisons. Luttrell worked to do what the previous organization could not, or we could even say would not do. He worked hard in Philadelphia, but that couldn't change what most people saw AIDS as. American society still only saw it as a white gay man's disease, and the task forces being made up of only white gay men didn't help. We see one point of view as to why white gay men were at the forefront of the AIDS task forces and why the black community was left behind in queer law and order, sex, criminality, and policing in the late 20th century United States by Timothy Stewart Winter. On the other hand, white men became the most visible face of the AIDS activism and do not always see the benefits of a coalition with African Americans. Even as black activists began to make a similar calculation about the gay rights movement, Moreover, the crisis introduced a new source of tension by making the gap in organizational infrastructure between poor black neighborhoods and the newly visible predominantly white middle-class gay enclaves more consequential. This idea of the homophobia in the black community and racism in the gay community will be covered more in-depth in the fourth episode of this series with the oral history of Tyrone Smith. With this idea in mind, let's take a pause and then we'll take a look at the tensions that grew in the AIDS task forces due to the issues we have just set up here that Luttrell experienced. Now that we know who Jim Luttrell is, let's pull back and look at the network of organizations and their growing tensions with Luttrell himself 
and amongst organizers and society as a whole. It was one of the most rabid, racist white people in Philadelphia, probably. Um, and we lived there, right in the middle of that community. Um, well, on, on the one side of the street were rabid, racist white people, and on our side of the street, there were this, this, this old, ancient African-American community that had been, used to go from Pine Street down to about Washington Avenue. And, so it was a very interesting place to be. As heard earlier, Jim describes being stuck in the middle of the black community on one side of the street and a lot of rabid racists on the other. This is the environment outside the task forces, but there was a similar energy for Luttrell in the task forces as well. Although Jim Luttrell was himself anti-racist, he had to find unity and navigate through the organizational leaders that may have claimed to operate under the same sentiment, but in truth operated with behaviors or policies that were in fact racist mostly seen in the lack of people of color in the leadership of the organization. And so there was more and more tension, but the other tension that I and some others felt anyway, arose uh, out of the racial composition of the group, which was pretty much all white and pretty much all male, way into. And I think that the, for me, the, format, the formative energy for Action Aids came from that issue, not from the the in, internal tension so much, but from the reluctance of some of the leadership of the task force to take steps proactively to engage with uh, people of color in inside the organization, you know, in the in the organization, and so that was as much as anything for me the reason to get up and make my speech about we need to leave and do something different. Luttrell illustrates that it was not the tension of the issue of racism in itself within the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force, but the demonstrative power of the lack of interest in engaging with minority groups within that leadership community that was the cause of the tension, and a catalyst for Luttrell to seek out change. We'll find later that the leadership did also play a role in the tensions. As we heard in segment one, Jim Luttrell met and worked with David Fair, they are both on the same side when discussing the lack of diversity and outreach of the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. But he, at some point, fired one of David's shots across the bow of this organization and, and sort of called us out about race. And the response of the most of the leadership was to say it's not an issue. I have time to, just to ignore it. And it really pissed me off. <laughs> Well, it pissed him off too, I think, but it really, I was inside the organization getting pissed off. And it, 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 it made Anna, I think, very mad too. And so I think for, I don't know if she would have said this or not, but I think that was for me one of the really important things that we tried to do. And when we put the Action Aids board together, we went, we spent a huge amount of time making sure it was a, a board that was, a, reflective of the population we were working with, which was still, at that point, you know, were lots and lots and lots of gay white men dying of AIDS and lots and lots of gay black men dying of AIDS. What also needs to be mentioned is that they immediately clashed. To Jim, David was too loud and angry for him. They may have both been on the same side, but David was a lot further on, on the side than Jim, to a fault. I, at the same time, I think that my memory of it was that there were, I remember board meetings where David would come in and shout and scream 
Um, but at the same time, I remember, well, I didn't know I'd been thanked in the newsletter, but, but there was that. I mean, there was this, I never, I don't, I remember a lot of shouting, but there was always a lot of shouting. <laughs> I just remember, you know, there was a lot of anger. And I, I guess I sort of thought, well, there's a lot of anger. Of course there's a lot of anger. How can that be a lot of anger? We're all angry. Um, and it was also, you know, there's a lot of energy in anger if you harness it. So I thought, well, that's good. Harness, but we the people in some ways was a way of using that energy and that anger to get things done. And it was a very effective advocacy organization. So I hope we were allies. <laughs> For most of the time, we were there. Tensions don't just go away, especially when they are ignored. We see that with the AIDS task forces of the early 80s. We have an excerpt from a Q&A with Dan Royals that discusses this event as a breaking point in AIDS task forces and his thought on what that breaking point was. And it's, it might be because it's kind of the first story that I found is the story of the AIDS candlelight vigil in Philadelphia and Rashida's speech there resigning from the PCHA board um, because it encapsulates so many of the tensions in that early moment around the place of people of color and specifically African-Americans in the Philadelphia neighborhood and you know the very acute way that they felt marginalized within Philadelphia's early AIDS institutions, along with kind of the response to it, which was very swift and harsh from you know the community of white gay men that she kind of found herself in in contest with, and then you know, all of the narratives about how the how the route took shape, how they chose where it was going to go, um, how they avoided the neighborhood because it was too white gay male, um, you know, kind of all the interests that went into the planning, the execution, and then the aftermath, I think, bring so much of this together. With what we have heard and set up, we and many others have concluded that the breaking point of these tensions is seen with Rashida Hassan's speech at the AIDS Candlelight Vigil in Love Park. One of the reasons that Bibashi had to come into being was because those organizations that existed to provide public health education for minority people didn't, couldn't, haven't, won't provide education for the minority community. Black people are also being discriminated against even within the gay community when it comes to being educated about AIDS. I know some of you may be offended by the fact that I would say anything against the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. But I think what's important to understand is that's where the resources are. And our people, minority, those differing comparatively to the population, have the right to be educated, have the right to have resources committed, have the right to stand here with you.
say that we are dying from this disease and you're making it our disease. If in your presentations to your community you don't remember the Hispanics and you don't remember the blacks, I guarantee you, I guarantee you we will be there to haunt you for it. We see with Rashida bringing light to the lack of help given to the black community got a lot of blowback. However, it was truly needed. This single act brought what was swept under the rug under a bigger rug into the public eye. The reason for this, which we will explore later, is that gay white men during the 80s found it insulting to be thought of as racist. And here Rashida, a black woman, stepped up and said the way they were ignoring the black men and women who are suffering needs to be fixed. However, this is a matter of lives versus feelings. This point will lead to many organizations changing how they work and are structured. Now that we have talked about the proverbial breaking point of many organizations, let's talk about what came after. Some organizations saw the changes that needed to be made in order to be more successful than their predecessors and tried their best to facilitate that change. Some more successful than others. For our analysis, we will be looking at the actions taken by ACT UP, also known as the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. What we will see with our analysis is that ACT UP is more diverse and unified, but not completely infallible to racism and classism. We see both in the 80s and even now, ACT UP has done immense good for the infected communities during the AIDS epidemic. We see from Jim Luttrell that ACT UP improves upon the framework created by early organizers. He describes how and why in his interview. That fueled ACT UP, that fueled the formation of these organizations that I was involved with. Um, and it reminds what's going on today in terms of the resistance uh, in these early, early days, and these are very early days. But it's, I said to somebody the other day after I was marching in Center City, one of these marches, and there were a bunch of speakers at City Hall, and it was a very mixed group of people. It was, it was racially mixed. It was mixed by gender and sexual orientation. And, all kinds of things, and it was the, the first time uh, for me since actually the, the early days of the, the late days of civil rights movement, early days of sort of feminism and, and gay rights stuff. The first time I'd seen there a coalition of people across race and gender and so forth at the same platform at the same time, genuinely focusing on the same sort of perceived enemy and the same goals of transformation and resistance. But I'm really, really impressed with the rapidity with which people are getting organized in a really serious way. Luttrell notes the unity that ACT UP had, but also was wary of the anger in which it came from. We see the good and the progress that ACT UP made with their many demonstrations. ACT UP became known for demonstrations known as die-ins, where they would lay in front of government buildings that they covered in posters demanding for those who have been affected and infected to get the care and recognition they need and deserve. Some of the protest signs that can be described as pieces of art that have been brought to these die-ins include tombstones that say killed by the FDA or killed by the system. 
signs that increase with each death and signs made to look like coffins and even actual coffins. With these numerous protests across the country, ACT UP forced more medical research to be done and helped save millions of lives of people who would have died from AIDS. They also reached out to the homeless populations to provide aid and facilitated needle exchange for IV drug users to use safely and decrease the spreading rate of AIDS. Today, because we're tired of this administration and we're going to take the ashes of some of our friends and drop them on the steps of the White House because we're not going to take it any longer. Every day somebody is coming. They're guilty of genocide and murder. They, allowed, they along with former President Reagan, allow the AIDS pandemic to go virtually without any action and are responsible for the death of possibly millions of people. It's going to get bigger and bigger. And they did nothing at a time when they could pay money for education to stop the spread of this pandemic, not only in the United States, but other countries. And so they're war criminals. They're guilty of genocide. We have seen the good, but now like any piece of history, we must take a critical look at the actions of ACT UP. No organization or anything dealing with people is all good or all bad, all black or all white. And in order to understand anything fully, we must explore the grays and educate and analyze in gray. ACT UP members have had a history of racism and classism in their outreach. We see a specific instance in an excerpt from Dan Royals' work to make the wounded whole. Here is that instance. He interviewed one poor black person with AIDS who recalled his impression of white ACT UP members like David, Davis, and Russell, who lived in Not Squat, a group house in West Philadelphia. Quote, I took it as a slap in the face when I went to visit one, one of their houses. They chose to live in a place with windows missing, no clean bathroom, and a hole in the living room floor. And that is offensive to people who have to live that way, who don't have rich parents, and who can't go home to the main line. Another interview, interviewee decided, after attending a handful of ACT UP Philadelphia meetings, quote, I can't do it with them because they don't get the poor black thing. When they talk to us, they talk to us in patronizing, condescending way. And when they talk to each other, the dialogue is between people who are pretty well educated, but they treat us in really simplistic terms, like we don't understand anything past a two-syllable word. This may seem like a small microaggression of just a couple volunteers being ignorant, but this shows a deeper problem within the organization. During the 70s and 80s, and even further before, there was a large increase in white people moving into predominantly black and Latinx neighborhoods for cheaper, and then renovating and driving up the property value. What is now referred to as gentrification. This combined with housing segregation has pushed many minorities to only be able to live in the houses that the white ACT UP members actively choose to live in under harsh conditions. This adds to the larger system of racism that many white gay men unknowingly and sometimes knowingly benefited from. We see an analysis of this in Queer Law and Order, Sex, Criminality, and Policing in the Late 20th Century United States by Timothy Stewart Winter. Here are his thoughts. In the decade and a half after 1968, however, 
As urban gay subcultures flourished, many urban gay organizations shifted their focus from policing the police to policing employers. This shift occurred in part because police entrapment of gay men in public places and routine police raids on gay and lesbian establishments declined sharply. By the early 1980s, raids on the largest gay bars were no longer routine in any of the nation's largest cities. Another factor was that more and more gay people were coming out of the closet and realizing the costs in doing so. The forms of anti-gay police harassment that implicated middle-class whites declined sharply in most of the cities during the 1970s. Simultaneous with the development of the racialized apparatus of mass incarceration, white gays and lesbians, no longer subjected to previous levels of arrest, prosecution, and incarceration, moved toward a, recon a reconciliation with the law and order state. This problem reaches further than just white gay men deciding to be racist during the 80s after seeing themselves parallel to the civil rights movement in the 70s. There is a shift to this that was slowly in the making due to gay people being finally seen as more accepted and white gay men beginning to get their taste of suburbia and shifting to be more like their white conservative neighbors and trying to protect themselves during the AIDS crisis. We also have an excerpt from a Q&A with Dan Royals on his thoughts on the comparison of ACT UP and the AIDS task forces that came before ACT UP. This is his thought. ACT UP in general, I think, had some of the same problems that groups like Philadelphia AIDS Task Force had. Um, and that is, they were groups that, they're, they're both groups that are kind of populated largely by white gay men. Um, without necessarily the kind of understanding of how they're experiencing AIDS and how that experience is different from the way that other folks, um, you know, particularly folks of color, black communities are experiencing AIDS. I think ACT UP in general is a little bit better than Philadelphia AIDS Task Force. It has some different, um, you know, kind of intellectual um, or social movement predecessors. And there are some folks in, in ACT UP who are much more deliberate about pushing the group into anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-colonial directions. Um, you know, but by and large, they're kind of of a piece, right? Um, you know, the, the, the people of color in ACT UP and, you know, the Black folks in ACT UP in particular, um, you know, recall, you know, some, 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 moments of profound blindness um, among the white organizers. As at Philadelphia is a little bit different, um, especially when we get into the, um, you know, the late 90s moment, because they're really trying to consciously have an organization that works for, for people of color and poor black people really in Philadelphia. People like Action AIDS, we see the problem that ACT UP and Action AIDS had been repeated but with small modifications, which can be predicted since similar, if not the same people who are involved in the leadership and volunteering of the organizations came from before and now. This, is, this also harkens to a systematic level in which the black community is being ignored in AIDS activism and healthcare in general. There's still, it's still a group that has a kind of core of white, HIV negative, largely middle class, organizers who are trying in good faith to organize poor people of color. Um, and there are some tensions that come up around that. Um, but, you know, on the whole, 
on the whole, they're trying to, you know, do really good anti-racist organizing, but I think that's always a process um, more than it is a destination. It's something that you continually have to work at and not something that you ever necessarily achieve. And the folks from Asset Philadelphia, I think are, were and are very aware of the power dynamics within the group and what those power dynamics bring to, or how those power dynamics complicate their organizing. Um, you know, but they are much more aware of those dynamics than were folks, say, in Philadelphia AIDS Task Force or in Actum, New York in the late 80s or 90s. Something that we are finding with the idea brought up by Dan Royals is that ACT UP is different, but some things haven't changed. With that, there is one idea that he brought up that I find interesting. The idea that anti-racism is a process, not a destination. This idea is an important realization that we should discuss in terms of ACT UP then, ACT UP now, and organizations like ACT UP. Anti-racism, much like ACT UP, is not a black and white issue. It exists in shades of gray. Many organizers can be volunteering, as stated by Dan Royals, in good faith, but still miss the mark just a little bit, or a lot. This is where the importance of organizations providing workshops would come, into, would come in on the leadership level. We have looked at where ACT UP stood in anti-racism and anti-classism during the beginning of the AIDS and HIV crisis, but what happened afterwards? From John Andres, the director of the John Wilcox Jr. Archive, we have heard about what ACT UP has become in the modern day when asked about it. Here's his response. So ACT UP very much still exists. Um, it is not as large of an organization. Um, uh, perhaps as it was during the height of the, of the AIDS crisis. Um, but ACT UP really remade itself after the development of protease inhibitors and um, decided to really uh, dedicate their efforts to, um, to people living in poverty, to housing issues, to people of color, um, to the issue of AIDS in Africa. Um, so it still exists today. It meets um, it meets during non-pandemic times, weekly uh, at St. Luke and the Epiphany, where it has, I think, maybe always met. Um, and during the pandemic, um, they use uh, one of our uh, Zoom accounts and have Zoom meetings. Um, so they continue to do work, and you know, they their issues are um, definitely certainly include HIV AIDS, but also go, go beyond that um, to deal with things like poverty and housing. And probably today they are certainly dealing with issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's interesting to see the evolution of ACT UP from the main era of research during the beginning and middle of the AIDS crisis, and then what they have done now. It is clear that during the time between the two areas of research, the leadership of ACT UP has done an overall of their ideals or all the gay white men left after the AIDS crisis became an ignored issue. This is an interesting point of research that can be explored more through oral histories. This will allow us to switch over to our final segment. We have spent some time now discussing a lot of deep topics, and I think it is important to take a moment to bring everything we have talked about together and look forward as we look back on history and the importance of being critical of history during the AIDS crisis. 
from segment two, we see the good and the bad of organizers and volunteers and AIDS task forces. And from segment three, we see the good and the bad of ACT UP and their work. But we need to see how ACT UP is more than just an organization that did all good, but also did not do all bad either. Compared to what we have seen from people who are recipients of ACT UP services, there has been a pivot to working with and for the communities in need. This is good for those communities. However, this does not erase the past of the organization. What I and many others have been finding throughout researching this project, and many others like it, is that nothing is truly black and white, good or bad. We as people exist in many shades of gray, some lighter or darker than others. With this idea in mind, we must analyze the balance of those grays in our history. The words of Deborah Gold in her work, Act Up, Racism, and the question of how to use history, describes this idea best. The claim that ACT UP was a racist organization moralizes the activist past rather than using it to inform contemporary struggles. Its implicit demand to disregard ACT UP seems anxious as if discussing this flawed organization might contaminate and compromise one's own politics. An approach to activist history that instead expects imperfection examines how mistakes come about and studies past activist experiences with an eye toward how they could strengthen contemporary struggles to remake the world might alleviate that anxiety and offers an alternative to what seems to me a damaging activist purism. With all of this discussion of being conscious of the issue of race, you must also look at what is racism and what acts are racist and how one can be anti-racist. When asked, Dan Royalts provides us with a very good look at what racism can be and is to white gay men and society overall. Here is that excerpt. In the response to AIDS in Philadelphia, I think there were probably a lot of white gay men who do not think of themselves as racist, um, you know, who probably thought of racism as being maliciously discriminatory toward people of a different race, who nonetheless were kind of willing to countenance a response to AIDS that was discriminatory in its effects, and that, you know, people who needed services in the black community were not getting them because they did not have the connection to uh, a predominantly white and segregated gay community. So it comes down to how we think about what racism is, right? That racism is not just me being an asshole to somebody who is black because I'm a white man and I, um, if we only think about racism in that way, then we end up with, and we have, um, you know, to borrow from the title of, of a, a pretty well-known book, racism without racism, because we still have institutions, we have social structures that are racist in their origins and in their effects. And so that's where I think you get a lot of the conflict um, that comes up in, in the Philadelphia AIDS community. Because for white people in a post-civil rights world, to be called a racist is like the worst thing that somebody can call you. It's, it's, it's felt as a personal attack. But what people are describing are the effects on their community that you are not willing to, to fight against. You know, if you're not willing to 
fight for equitable aid services for, you know, black people from the institutions that you are part of, heavily invested in, contributing to, then does that make you a racist? Does that make you a racist? Well, your, your actions are racist. The actions of these institutions are racist and, you know, you're not challenging them. So, you know, I think we, we, we need to think of racism less as an not, not as a quality that people have or don't have because that's not productive, but we live in a society that is largely structured, um, deeply structured around racial difference. Dan Royals brings up an important point here that many white gay men during the 1980s thought about themselves as not racist because they aren't like the incredibly rabid racists in the words of Jim Luttrell and find that even being thought of as racist is incredibly insulting. And so we all live in that world. We all take part in, in the institutions that shape that world. And so, you know, what we need more than to kind of point out who is or is not racist is to have a kind of critical perspective on on how race shapes the world that we live in and what we can do about it. And that's what I think people in this this story were lacking. And that's where you get the conflict is when it becomes a when it becomes for for the white game in the story an issue of hurt feelings, then everything gets shut down and there's no path forward. But, you know, when we can take a real critical look at our society and the institutions that, that make it up, then maybe we can do something more about it. The points that Dan Royals brings up in this interview that will allow us to take a look at our initial question, how did white gay men deal with the issue of race during the AIDS crisis? The answer is still nuanced and still leans towards no actions were taken to deal with the issue of race. But the way we see the term and concept of racism and a person being racist is different. During this time, the only way to be not racist is to be explicitly and forcibly anti-racist, like Jim Luttrell. Men like Luttrell and other gay white men have benefited from the racist system that has been created and around for hundreds of years. This could allow us to ask and subsequently answer the question, why weren't gay white men conscious of the issue of race during the AIDS epidemic? And with the answer being that they were looking out for people like them during the crisis, hearkening back to the idea of making sure your house isn't on fire before putting out your neighbors. However, there's still the implicit privilege that many gay white men had during the AIDS crisis and still have now. With that idea, this still boils down to effort. Many gay white men knew what was happening to the black community or were so blind that they couldn't see their own neighbor suffering and didn't put in the effort for more than just themselves. From the buddy system to medical care, it always benefited them the most. In the black community, the homeless and IV drug users got the scraps. Out of all of this we see with ACT UP and other task forces, they did do a lot of good and are still doing a lot of good for marginalized communities from a framework that Jim Luttrell spent most of his life creating and trying to include as many people as possible in, with the tensions of his anti-racist ideals and the racist volunteers clashing. I would like to leave you all with the idea of applying this to the activism I and many other young adults are participating in today. They are united in an anger that has been questioned. 
creating and innovating on the framework of previous organizations to do more than those that came before. And all of this while working to save people from a pandemic. It's the same outline with different colors. There is the common saying by George Santayana that states, those who do not repeat the past are condemned to repeat it. But here, with the strides the younger generations are making, we can be proud of the courage that grows with the repetition and hope the cycle will end here. I think keeping this idea in mind, let's end with a quote from Jim Luttrell. But I'm really, really impressed with the rep rapidity with which people are getting organized in a really serious way, you know, not just sort of floundering and, fla and flailing about, but actually building out constructs that will last. And that's what we tried to do in those days, was actually construct stuff that could sustain this onslaught and sustain those of us who were involved and affected by it. I don't think the early movement right now is on purpose very good at taking care of its members so much, but I think that will come. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope to see you again soon. This podcast is made by a talented team and thanks need to be given. This podcast has been produced by our team Elizabeth Solon, Nadia Etamad, Ezra Incorvaya, and Lucy Helgren. Sound design in this episode has been done by Ezra Incorvaya. Thanks to our series hosts, Zach Levy-Dyer and Violet Rose Collins. The Other Streets of Philadelphia, The Early AIDS Crisis in the City of Brotherly Love is a project in which myself and other hosts explore early AIDS history in Philadelphia through oral histories told by those who are at the forefront of the movement. These histories are brought to you by the John Wilcox Library, Philadelphia's most extensive collection of personal papers, organizations records, periodicals, audiovisual material, and ephemera documenting the rich history of our LGBTQ community. We here thank you for your time and hope you tune in to the rest of the episodes as well.